welcome to the What Do You Believe podcast, where our vision is to love God and love people by being a relevant Pentecostal voice, focusing on evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and theology. My name is Jared Walker, here with Joe Irostek. We're pastoral elders at Metro Praise International Church in Chicago, and we are uh, blessed and highly favored to be joining you this afternoon. We have a lot we want to talk about a lot. We want to cover. Uh, first, we're going to talk about our upcoming Ohio Park outreach this Saturday. This is a back-to-school bash on the west side. I'm sure your church has done stuff like this before, and it's going to kind of take us into, a, a, I think, a bigger discussion. How do we reach the poor communities in the cities we live in? Then we're going to go to In the News. We're going to look at President Trump's ban on transgendered personnel in the military. Uh, we do believe it's a wise view. What do you believe? A little sneak peek there. Um, Pastor Joe is going to uh, be looking at Islam after that and looking at some basic tenets of Islam. And this is actually to set us up and to whet our appetite for, um, Lord willing, what could be a very fruitful debate uh, between Pastor Joe and an Islamic representative here on this program. So stay tuned in the weeks to come. Uh, Jared's Gems, uh, those are secret surprises from, from my treasure house. So uh, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. And then a word from the word on correcting false prophets. And I think Pastor Joe's going to give some clarity and practical insight to that. So how have you been uh, this week? I've been doing awesome, my brother. It's good to be here with yes. you. Uh, I'm excited that we get to do this show every week, and I've been hearing some good feedback. So uh, I'm going to hand it back over to you, and let's talk about what's going on at MPI in the news. All right. This Saturday, we are having our back-to-school outreach in Ohio Park. To be clear, that's 4700 West Ohio Street. If you live in Chicago, this is the west side. This is uh, the hood, the inner city. And Every good church I've ever known has done some form of inner city outreach where they're going out, where they, where they know that the poorer folks are and, and reaching out in various ways. So we do that too. We have um, back to school outreach. So we will be giving away school supplies and goodies and snacks for all the kids. And we will be raffling off some Greater prizes, uh, tablets, is that right? Because we did tablets in the past. Yeah, we're not going to give them away there. We're going to give them away at the Wednesday back to school. So okay. there's two back to schools. Yeah, so we're going to invite them to church where they can enter a raffle to win some tablets and other uh, higher-end prizes, so to speak. It's going to be a great time. We've spent, as, as long as we've been at church, we've been going to Ohio Park. It's been our adopt-a-block, so to speak. A lot of churches do this. They, they scope out a block where they choose to minister, and we've done this as long as we've been a church. A little story about that. When Pastor Joe was, was first in this city, because he's not from Chicago, but when he first came to Chicago and he was in this neighborhood, he was actually uh, propositioned by a, by a prostitute there, a lady of the night. And and from that day forward, the Lord had laid on his heart that this neighborhood is for Jesus, that Ohio Park is for Jesus Christ. So let me just take you a little bit on our journey there. When I first came to the church back in 2007, early 2008, they were doing week, uh, not weekly, but monthly block parties. 
and they would go the whole nine, bringing out sound system, hot dogs, and everything else. They'd put on a show. They'd put on a performance, whatever they could do a month in and month out. And we found out that that really wasn't making disciples. We were reaching adults. There were a lot of people coming for the music, for the food and things like that, but it was not generating what we're after as a church and hopefully what you're after as well if you're a pastor or a church leader, which is disciples. There were not people from that neighborhood actually becoming a part of our church, growing in their faith and so on. And we, uh, at a point in time, we we took on many forms of ministry. I remember back in my SUM days and for my Christian service, I used to pick up garbage. We'd go house to house and we would just ask people, hey, what can we do for you? Can we clean your yard? We did all these things. What we settled on doing was focusing on the children. And so for several years, I think at least since 2009, we have been busing children from the West Side to come be a part of our church, to come be a part of uh, what we have, uh, you know, in the Assemblies of God, they have Royal Rangers and Impact. We do the same thing, boys and girls clubs. That's like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but Christian. So we have included them in that uh, part of our journey. And we found that that for us is the best way to to help the, the poor and impoverished community. And what's the best way to help the poor and impoverished community is to make disciples. Mm-hmm. Pastor Joe can speak to serving in the Calliope projects of New Orleans, where Master P and all of them are from, and can attest to being out there day in, day out among the poorest of the poor, having his church right there. And uh, I, I speak from the experience of working in Ohio Park for as long as I've been a Christian. But there's two ways, two approaches to help impoverished people. There is the handout and there's the hand up. And this, this we'll call this a poverty mentality. The poverty mentality exists whether you're black or white or Asian or whatever, it can exist in any person in any part of the world. We have friends in Africa, South Africa, and they will tell you about this give me, give me mentality. Uh, Gene and Tisa, whom we mentioned a few weeks ago, Gene was talking about just the fact that he couldn't have a regular conversation. He couldn't just kick it with the boys because it's always going to come down to, hey, what can you do for me? white missionary. What can you give me, white missionary? Hey, I need something, white missionary. And so there's always that, unless you're going to give me something, unless you're going to do something for me, I'm not going to be a part of it. That is a poverty mentality. It's a greedy mentality. It's a stingy mentality. It's someone who takes, 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 but never gives. So how do we help the poor? The Bible talks a lot, Old New Testament, about helping the poor. Jesus made a great emphasis on helping the poor. How do we do it effectively? Are we just giving out, you know, sandwiches and hot dogs? Are we going out, like, let's say, uh, Lower Wacker Drive or going to the, to the viaducts where the homeless people sleep? Is that really the way to do it? Is that the best way? And is that the most biblical way? And that's the question for you all as you as you ponder this, what do you believe is the most biblical and effective way to reach impoverished people? Let me just give you a few thoughts here. Luke 4.18, when Jesus says that the spirit of the Lord is on me, and he quotes Isaiah 61 there, this is a messianic prophecy. When he quotes that, the first thing that the spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do is to preach the good news to the poor. And then in Matthew 11, verse 8, when John's disciples are asking him, 
are you the Messiah or is it somebody else? And Jesus goes on and tells them in uh, Matthew 11, verse 4, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is how Jesus ushered in the kingdom, and this was Jesus' primary way of helping the poor. Uh, now, Pastor, from your experience, do you want to speak to any of that from, from New Orleans? or? Yeah, just a few minutes that we have left here in this segment. I would definitely say that we have to uh, reach people in the place where they're at. So if the people are poor, we need to go to them and not discriminate against them. So we definitely don't want to treat the poor any different. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says the poor will be more easily reached. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said that it's harder for a rich man to, uh, and camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. So we should not find it a surprise that the mission field, and even here in America, that oftentimes the poor are easier to reach because that's part of what Jesus said. But we don't want them to be po no mo. So we don't want to discriminate against them and uh, only look for the rich because in the book of James, it, it says it's actually the rich that are oppressing you. So uh, we don't want to do that and play favorites and say, you poor person sit at my feet and you rich person, you get the nice seat. No, we should favor uh, the gospel the gospel should favor those who are in need because that's an opportunity to see them get to heaven and heaven will be filled with souls regardless of whether or not they were poor or rich so uh, that is just a temporary circumstance but at the same time we do not want to be empowering people to stay in poverty we don't want to have them become a uh, jimmy and they'll take all you will give me we want to teach them to be independent we want to teach them to be self-sufficient and that's how the bible teaches them to be you know if a man doesn't work he doesn't eat so we call this a hand up instead of a hand out. We teach them the principles of, of, of the Bible, teach them the principles of hard work. You work hard, you save hard, uh, you do those things and God will bless you. And what I love about going to Ohio Park is that we're seeing a, a fruit there because we've been doing it for so many years. And yes, uh, it starts a lot with the young. That's another thing. Not only did Jesus say that the poor would receive it better than the old, I mean the poor better than the rich, but the young better than the old. He said that these children are the ones that the kingdom belongs to. And now we see fruit in our ministry. They're not children anymore. And it may be few of them, but remember, that's also what Jesus said. The path is wide that goes to destruction and the, and the road is narrow that goes to eternal life. So urban ministry is a, a tough ministry. It deals a lot with the poor, a lot with the young. But if we're faithful, God will make us fruitful. And we're seeing that fruit born. We're going there this Saturday. We'll take a lot of pictures. You guys can come out and join us. And we keep Busting them in on Wednesdays and expecting them to come and join our clubs. And then as they get older, they join the Friday youth group in the church, so forth and so on. And so we believe that urban ministry is important. What do you believe about reaching the poor, especially in our cities? Do you believe that probably the reason why we have so many problems in our urban areas is because the church hasn't been a problem solver? Would you say that as you look at a city like Chicago that's always on the news, would you agree with the scriptures and say that people perish 
for the lack of knowledge. Would you agree that the Bible says when fools are in charge, the people groan, but when the godly come into power, the people rejoice? Would you agree that the people of God are a blessing to their city and they uplift their city, but the wicked bring it down? Well, if you do, let's get you out in the urban areas. And if you're not in urban areas, find the poor and hurting where you're at. But uh, that's what we believe. What do you believe? All right. Next on In the News, we are going to talk about President Trump's uh, ban on transgendered personnel in the military. Let's just back up for a moment and examine the issue of transgenderism. This is the T in LGBTQRS and the rest of the uh, of the alphabet that they've thrown in as they continually add new categories of gender preference and sexual identity uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Transgenderism is a mental disorder. That does not sound pleasant, but it is. And it does not belong in the military. If you have people in the military who are diagnosed with being schizophrenic, uh, or who are diagnosed with, with bipolar, severe mood disorders, that would bar them from serving in the military. Similarly, if you have a man, a male, he has male genitals, he is a man, and he believes he is a woman, or he believes he is something other than what he is, what can you call that except a mental disorder? Someone who has a delusion, who believes something other than what is reality. Well, I'm going to reference right now an article by Dr. Michael Brown from the stream, stream.org. And his article is titled, Why Christians Should Applaud the Military's Transgender Policy. Uh, Donald Trump did a good thing here. Love him or hate him, this was a good call. You can look at the thing he did before that or the thing after, or the fact that it came out via tweet, which is just a whole new ball game here. Yeah. But the fact that he is doing this is practical wisdom, and ultimately it's justice and fairness. So here's a few things from Dr. Brown's article, a few points. Number one, the military isn't a lab for social experiments. Accommodating openly transgender people in the military is a massive social experiment. It means women sharing showers and bunks with biological males who identify as females. It means men living together with females who identify as men but still get their periods. It means everyone having to accommodate people at all stages of transition. Why impose this on the military? Number two, the military cannot waste money on transitions for those who identify as transgender. And what's actually going on is there is a push to have the government fund um, transgender reassignment surgery, hormonal therapy, and all of those things for people who want to transgender uh, transition to a different gender. And, and for, first of all, why are tax dollars going to this? And second of all, if there are so many holes in the, the VA system. We, we've heard in past years about scandals in, in, the, in, health, in healthcare that is provided for our veterans. Why are we not focusing on helping our veterans that actually need help instead of spending all of this money and giving all of this attention um, to, to that matter? The third thing is that the military has requirements for men and women. This becomes clouded and complex when men can pretend to become women and vice versa. For example, a female to male person 
uh, must a female to male person perform at the same level as other men, including the strength and endurance tense? And if the hormone treatments are not at, and what if the hormone treatments are not in hand during military combat? Will this affect the person's service? Once again, these new issues should not be imposed on the military. Furthermore, words like serviceman or airman or seaman all become irrelevant. And actually, they are having a hard time rewriting their their books and retitling um, the, the titles of officers in their ranks. Finally, we would oppose this as Christians for the same reasons we oppose uh, transgenderism in other spheres. When Target said, we're going to open up our bathrooms to uh, transgendered folks, the immediate concern is we can have women, we can have girls that are in the same bathrooms as men who claim to be women. And that's a problem. Would you want your wife in that predicament? Would you want your daughter in that predicament? No. And in point of fact, doing that in a military setting in the context of the boot camps and deployment and everything else in between, you are putting women uh, at a greater risk of, by the men who claim to be women. You are putting people of religious uh, conscience uh, out as well. And so you're basically subjecting really the 99% of of the population to the 1% of uh, mental delusion, uh, which is a very small percentage. It's less than 1%. So, so here's my, my final thought on this. Uh, going back a few years, I, we were in uh, Boys Town, Belmont and Clark, and I was witnessing to somebody who called, who called herself Brother Lawrence. And that's all I know her as. So, Brother Lawrence, I'm talking to Brother Lawrence, who is a woman who is now living as a man. I did not probe, or, or at least I don't remember how far along she was in that transition, if she'd had any procedure or what have you, but she chose to identify as a man. Talking to her, and listen, we got to reach out to these folks with compassion and grace. So, I was talking to her, and she was telling me a very tragic story of being a woman um, I, I, who, who many thought was a lesbian. And because she had these tendencies about her, she had people that tried to rape her straight. And it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And she says she's been to churches and she says people tried to cast out demons from her and what have you. She said the only time she felt peace was when she went forward uh, with her procedure. So if that, that does jog my memory that she did have some kind of procedure. Uh, but I told her this. This was my word to Brother Lawrence, wherever she is, and to anyone listening. What Jesus said in John chapter 3 is that the flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born of the spirit. What this woman did was an augmentation of the flesh, what her problem was is not with her body. It was with her mind and with her spirit. The solution for her was to be counseled, to have her mind and her emotions healed, to be ministered to, to have her spirit renewed by the spirit of God, not to have her flesh mutilated. 
made in to have her genitals made to look like male parts to have hormones treatments that will give her male you know testosterone to give her male urges and male tendencies that will actually fade away once she stops taking those hormones the solution for her was that she be born of the spirit born of god a child perfectly righteous perfectly loved by her heavenly father and uh so that's that's our, our word for those in the transgender community. We do love you, but we want to help you. Yeah, and so the question is, what do you believe when it comes to transgender issues? Do you think that the military should be a place where people work out their mental disorders? I don't think it should be. Uh, first of all, we see in the Bible that he created them male and female, Genesis 1.27. So do you believe what the Bible says? God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Well, that's what I believe. And so I take the position, not only because the Bible says it's true, but the Bible says it's true, and there's confirmation in science. The leader of uh, the John Hopkins um, uh, psychiatric department here labels it as a disorder. And all of the people in this uh, movement, the LGBT movement, are trying to silence these men. Dr. Paul McHugh has said that this is a disorder, and it is biologically impossible, impossible to change someone's gender. Now, what do you believe uh, TV.com? You can check out these links that I'm referring to right now. And you can also follow along in iTunes and, and our app with Metro Praise International or just stay up to date with us here on Facebook on What Do You Believe? But uh, WhatDoYouBelieveTV.com has these links here that this man is being basically bullied because he's taking the predominant position, which has always been held, that it's a mental disorder. So do you believe what God said? Uh, do you believe that the military is not a place for mental disorders? And then now they also have other um, scientific reports. They, uh, The liberals were once saying that you could be gender fluid and that the genes of the body were uh, able to, to, to change with the mind. And now the Weizmann Institute of Science has actually disproven that. So 21% of the entire human genome, which is composed of about 30,000 genes, are gender-specific traits. Think about that. 21% of the genes inside of our bodies are according to our gender. And that's because God did it that way. So that is the natural order of things. Uh, in small percentages, there may be people born with physical um, deformaments and may have issues there. Well, that's the, the problem is that we have to help them and to fix it because it's a gender uh, dysphoria. Well, here you have another form of a gender dysphoria, but it's coming from the mind, not from the physical organs. And so if someone else were to say, let's cut off my arm and I'll be happier, which they've actually had people do that, say, I don't feel my arm belongs here. And you can study that limb dysphoria. And that is true. And there's also suicidal people who take their own life. We don't encourage those behaviors. We want to find healing for it. And the way I say it is, if you're willing to go through all of this uh, procedure, cutting a part of your body, mutilation, taking hormones for the rest of your life, why not take that same sacrifice to believe God's word? Because God is the only one that explains why we're here to begin with, let alone our gender. So 
what do you believe about genders? Do you believe it's as God said, male and female? What do you believe about people who have mental disorders? Do you believe they should be able to serve in the, in, in the military? And what do you believe about current science and psychiatry from the best that continues to confirm what we are saying is true? So now we want to move on to our talk about Islam today. And just want to remind you that we will have a time for Q&A at the end of this show. Our last segment is always for Q&A, so please post up those questions if you have any. And we are really grateful for all of you who spent time with us either live or via the podcast or the app. Now, I had four years ago hosted a debate with Robert Spencer, the New York Times bestselling author on a jihad between him and a Muslim, and they discussed the issue of jihad. It's actually my number one watch video on iTunes, well over, I mean, on YouTube, well over 100,000 views. So this is one of the most popular ones that I have there, and you can check it out. And uh, I met the guy from Gain Peace, and when I met him, it's a Dawa initiative based here in Chicago, and Gain Peace is the name of it. When I met him, basically his um, his way of talking was, I don't really want to debate, I just want to do dialogue. And I said, well, I don't really do dialogues, all I do is debate. And so he said, well, what, what could we do that would be favorable towards me, make it easier for me? Because he's not really an expert on Christianity. He's a doctor by, by trait. And uh, so I said, well, here's my book on Islam. Why don't we debate that? And he said that he would. He never got back to me. Fast forward now four years later. And now he is uh, calling me up and is open to discussing with me. And as I'm looking here, even at his Facebook page, it looks like he's really taking pride in preaching to the white Americans, especially the white American is what he's really uh, boasting in here as his main target audience. And so he is uh, w holding workshops with gainpeace.com, sharing Islam with Christians, tips and techniques. And for whatever reason, I've been brought back up into his mind, and he may even be watching this right now. So Sabil, we love you. We are praying for you. And we will be having him on August 16th, Wednesday, at our same time. And it, the whole show will be debated, uh, uh, rather, the whole show will be a debate about the book that I wrote on Islam. And you can get it for free on my website, the church's website, mpichurch.org, in uh, PDF, or pick it up in a paperback, either there, order, or come get it at the church. Well, the long story short is I want to talk about Islam now until then to inform our viewers and so I thought no better than to start with uh, David Wood, one of the best apologists that we have, and to start there, and he'll describe some of these things that would, you know, I just could not do it as well as this brother. I mean, this is an amazing gift this brother has. So let's watch this uh, video on who was Muhammad, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about it, and I'll have other videos I'll play, play in the weeks ahead, because this is basically where I got the information for my book. My book was written from a perspective of helping Muslims see Christ and Christianity and giving Christians the basic idea of, of Islam. So it's helping a Muslim come into Christianity and helping a Christian understand what Islam is about. And uh, I did it for a school project and put it into a book, and I will be rewriting, rewriting it one day, but the arguments mostly are already out there now on YouTube in different places, and, and of course these guys are experts at it. So let's take a listen to Who Was Muhammad by Dr. David Wood, Act17.net.
Oopsie daisy, did it again. Sorry, guys. I always forget to include the audio. Forgive me. I will uh, start again here, and uh, we will do it right. So I'll start again here. Please forgive me. Here we go. Take two. It's kind of difficult to be certain about most of the details of Muhammad's life because the historical sources are so late. Our earliest detailed biographical source on Muhammad's life is Ibn Ishaq Sirat Rasulullah, which was written more than a century after Muhammad died. And we don't even have what Ibn Ishaq actually wrote. We only have an edited version by Ibn Hisham. And Muslims don't even pay much attention to Ibn Ishaq. The sources they used to learn about Muhammad, their main hadith collections, were written two to three centuries after he died. So we're dealing with some very late material. But if we take the Muslim sources at face value, the story of Muhammad's life goes something like this. He was born around 570 AD in a city called Mecca in what is now Saudi Arabia. His father, Abdullah, died before he was born, and his mother, Amina, died when he was six years old. After the death of his grandfather, Muhammad was raised by his uncle, Abu Talib, leader of the Banu Hashim clan. While he was still young, Muhammad began working in the Meccan caravan trade, which put him in contact with diverse religious traditions. When he was 25, he married a wealthy widow, Khadija, who was 15 years older than he was. With more leisure time, Muhammad developed the habit of retreating to a cave on Mount Hira for prayer and reflection, as was common for the polytheists of the Meccan Quraysh tribe. So it seems that Muhammad was very interested in religious matters long before anyone believed he was a prophet. During one of his yearly retreats, Muhammad became convinced that a jinn or a demonic spirit had possessed him and had ordered him to recite some verses. The verses said, Read in the name of your Lord who created, who created man from a clot of blood. Read, and your Lord is most generous, who taught by the pen, taught man what he did not know. These words are now found in the Quran, chapter 96, verses 1 through 5. So this is when Muhammad started receiving revelations that would eventually become the Quran. But again, he didn't think that they were revelations at this point. He thought that he was possessed by some sort of poetry demon. He was 40 years old at the time, and he was so embarrassed at the thought of being possessed by a jinn or a demon that he tried to hurl himself off a cliff. But whatever it was that gave him the verses stopped him from committing suicide. Muhammad ran home to his wife Khadija and her cousin Waraka, and it was Khadija and Waraka who persuaded him that he wasn't possessed, he was a prophet of Allah. Muhammad soon began preaching Islam to friends and family members and later to the public. But his messages became increasingly inflammatory. He condemned the religious beliefs of the polytheists of Mecca and he mocked their gods. Not surprisingly, the Meccans eventually started persecuting Muhammad and his followers. And after his wife Khadija and his uncle Abu Talib died, Muhammad decided to flee the city of Mecca. His new city, Medina, was a little over 200 miles north of Mecca. After forming alliances with various non-Muslim groups, Muhammad began robbing the Meccan caravans. These attacks eventually led to a series of battles with Mecca, the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, and the Battle of the Trench. As war booty poured in, so did new converts. The growing Muslim army allowed Muhammad not only to subdue Mecca, but to subdue the rest of Arabia as well. Unfortunately for Muhammad, after attacking a Jewish settlement at Kaibar, a Jewish woman whose family had been killed by Muslims offered to cook dinner for Muhammad and some of his companions, and the Prophet of Islam accepted her offer. But the food she gave him was poisoned. Muhammad spit the food out, but according to Muslim sources, the poison caused some sort of internal damage, which led to severe pain and ongoing medical problems. Muhammad suffered an agonizing death a few years later in 632. So to put all of this together, we can divide Muhammad's life into three main periods. There's the time before he claimed to be a prophet, 
This would be 570 to 610. There's his time in Mecca after he claimed to be a prophet. This is 610 to 622. And there's his time in Medina as a prophet. This is 622 until his death in 632. All right. So basically, uh, David Wood is awesome. I mean, he is the best of the best. I like to say it like this. I preach like these guys do apologetics by the grace of God. I mean, that is their gift. Those of you who know me, I do my best in apologetics, but this is their gift. I mean, I love uh, relying upon them. So to, to say it in a nutshell, basically, we believe that Muhammad was demonized. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 1, though we or an angel come to you and preach another gospel, let them be anathemized or let them be eternally condemned. And he said it again, Galatians 1.8, he says, as we have already said now in verse 9, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be accursed. So one of the ways that I like to really preach to Muslims is to start off with this simple understanding of the time frame. Without getting into all the details, it's just really simple. Who came first, Jesus and his disciples or Muhammad and his vision? What came first? Well, Jesus and the disciples came first. Okay, so we have their records. This is what they defined as true doctrine, what they define as the Christian belief. Okay, now Muhammad comes 700 years later, almost 600 plus years later, and says he has received a vision from an angel that denies those things. The main central tenets that God is triune, that Jesus is God's son, uh, equal in his uh, nature, that Jesus dies on the cross, and that Jesus raises from the dead for our salvation by faith in him and not of works. And so now we have our, our, our first conflict. Are we going to take the warnings of Paul, which precede um, the Islamic message, and say, this is how we're going to filter what happened with Muhammad, or are we going to believe what Muhammad said is true? Well, I'm going to look at the Bible and say it's true. And what's unique about the Quran is that it even says it affirms the Bible. And we'll get into this later on how there's actually an internal uh, inconsistency and contradiction in Islam itself because of how it affirms the Torah, uh, the Torah, the Zabar, the Injil, which is the Psalms of David, the Torah, of the, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the, the Gospel. And so now what Muslims want to say is, oh, the ones that Muhammad was affirming, the things that he said were good for us, they're not the ones Christians have because the ones Christians have have been changed to fit their doctrines. Well, isn't that convenient that now that we look at our scriptures, they totally conflict Muhammad's uh, visions that now they want to say we have the wrong scriptures. But let's go back. He is an illiterate man living in, 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 in the Middle East at that time, uh, separated from the people of the Bible. He has no idea except all these little stories that he's heard. And so he thinks he's confirming these things, but he's really not. And now we have to point it out that the conflict lies with them, not with us. Let's go back to the Bible and show that who does the Bible say can appear as an angel of light and deceive many? Satan. What does the Bible say would happen when people started listening to angels that supposedly brought new revelations that contradicted the old ones? They were to be anathemized. And so what we can see now as I move on to the next section here is that Jesus said there would be false prophets. But before I give my little short word on false prophets and how that's the, the lens we need to see Muhammad in is as a false prophet, more, more than likely demonized, and as well as uh, 
taking on the influences of the pagans around him, like the praying uh, to Mecca. The pagans did that. The five prayer times, uh, the pagans did that. The belief in that black rock uh, was what the pagans did. And the um, there's no God but Allah. That creed uh, was what the pagans did. So many of these things, casting stones at the devil, at, at the Hajj, the pagans did. And he mixed it in there, a little Judaism and a little Christianity. So you got a little, little Islamic pie being a dose of Judaism, a whole lot of paganism, a little bit of Christianity. But that's a false prophet, according to the Bible, which precedes him by 600 years. And so uh, before I get into the little teaching I have on being uh, false prophets being around, uh, what do you think about Islam in my upcoming debate, my man? Well, my question is typically, what do you believe? Here it is. Who do you believe? Do you believe Jesus or Muhammad? You can't believe both. You can't believe both. There are exclusivity claims here. Jesus claims to be God in the flesh, sent from his father, equal to his father. Muhammad denies that. The Bible clearly attested history with it, clearly attested Jesus' death on the cross. Surah 1, uh, chapter 4, Surah 4, verse 157 of the Quran denies that explicitly, denies the crucifixion altogether, and Muslims have to come up with alternatives as to why it appears that Jesus was crucified. So you, you can't have both. It's, it's simply the law of non-contradiction. They can't be both be true at the same time. And what we're saying, and I believe we can build this case and will build this case, and it will stand up in debate, is that the testimony of Jesus and his disciples is more trustworthy about the truth of God than that of Muhammad and his vision. Amen. Good job, my brother. Good summary. And let me just say it like this. What we will learn in in this time before the actual debate until the 16th, uh, what we will learn is that Islam cannot be right. It is impossible for it to be right. Not only does it contradict the scriptures, which that right there says it's wrong, but it contradicts itself and gives evidence. And I believe God left this here as a mercy to the Islamic people that if they even searched their religion, they would see the contradictions. And so this uh, man, Sabil, who's here with one agenda only, his his website, Gain Peace, has one agenda only, and that is to do dawah, which is the Islamic word for uh, evangelism. He wants to win the Americans to the Lord, and nobody uh, would, would want to see that more than the devil. Uh, and I am sorry to say that, but it's a doctrine of demons. And so in love, we're going to help tell Muslims the truth. And that's the best thing we can do is to show them that they don't have the truth. Now, Jesus said that there would be false prophets. Look at what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. There on the mount, uh, as he gives a sermon on the mount, this wonderful time of the Beatitudes, he gets really tough on some things. So it's not just all, um, you know, singing Barney songs together. We need to see the Jesus that had strong things to say. And this is what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. So once again, when does Muhammad come? After Jesus, we should be watching out for him, right? Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So Muhammad and Islam today may look like it's acceptable for Christians to pay attention to, because maybe they'll say, we like you believe Jesus was a prophet. We believe Moses was a prophet. But hey, hold on. What if someone started off saying, I believe Jesus was a man, uh, I believe Joe was a man, but Joe was also a man that raped people, or Joe was a man that this, you would say, yeah, we have an agreement that Joe's a man, but not 
what Joe did. They say Jesus is a prophet, and that's true, but Jesus was a whole lot more than that. And to deny the red letters of the Bible, as we like to say, the actual teachings of Jesus is more insulting towards Jesus. To deny that Jesus called himself the great I am, to deny that Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped as God, to deny the fact that Jesus made himself equal to the Father and inspired the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit that taught that he was the eternal Logos in the beginning with the Father, to deny that is worse than saying that I would rape children, because this is blasphemy against God. Verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Well, let's look at Jesus. Let's just look at Jesus here. They start, They try to say that Muhammad is the last and the greatest of all the prophets. Well, let's just do a little comparison. We'll do that on the show as well. Jesus never married, lived a single life. Muhammad married a nine-year-old and got the permission to marry her at six years old and had multiple wives, even taking one from an adoptive son. And because he did that, he actually then did away with adoption, which is why Muslims aren't for adoption. And Christians have to go to their nations and do adoption because they look down upon it because Muhammad uh, did away with it so he could have his adopted son's wife. Jesus didn't marry a man, married a nine-year-old and a whole bunch of other women killed to have those women and, and, and conquered lands, etc., and mistreated them. He even beat his wife and taught in the Quran that you can beat a woman who doesn't listen to you. So there, there's a little comparison. How about this? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. He laid down his life for us. Muhammad beheaded people, was vicious, killed innocent people, and taught that adulterers should be stoned. Jesus said adulterers should not be stoned, that the law has been fulfilled because no one could do it. He did it for us. So do we go back into some kind of an Old Testament way times 10 and be even more statistic? Or do we take the, the, the teachings of Jesus? Jesus said, love your enemies. Uh, Muhammad taught to hate your enemies. Jesus said that God loved the whole world. Muhammad taught that only uh, uh, Allah loved those who did his will. Jesus said it was by faith in him that salvation would come. Muhammad said it had to come through works. Jesus guaranteed that his disciples a place to, in paradise. Muhammad gave no guarantee of paradise except for those who died in violent jihad. So the comparisons go on and on and on and on. My friend, where's the fruit? The good fruit is with Jesus. And so it's not just political. Sometimes we will say, well, we don't want to get into politics and things. The Bible is all about politics, by the way. Most people don't want to talk about religion and politics. But that's all the Bible talks about. That's all the prophets talked about. But now watch, okay? The Bible says that you'll know them by their fruit. And now we see Muhammad's fruit is bad. And then now somebody will say, well, all Muslims aren't like that. Well, that's the problem. Not all Muslims live like ISIS because not all people believe like ISIS. They should follow Muhammad's exact example. So the more I live like Jesus, the more I will be peaceful and loving and kind and gentle, one wife, etc. The more I follow the teachings of Jesus, the more a Muslim stops following Western ideals and follows Islam, the more wives they'll have, the more they'll beat them, the more they'll want to stone uh, adulterers, uh, behead people, and believe in a literal jihad to produce their world religion. That's how Islam spread was by force. So my friends, just because you've met a peaceful Muslim doesn't mean that 
that Muhammad was peaceful. See, we love Muslims, but hate Islam, the ideology. And you got to remember, Islam is not a race. It's an ideology. So I love Muslims, hate the ideology of Islam. And so somebody may say like, oh, you know, Muslims aren't terrorists, but Islam is violent. So, you know, just like today, Christians don't live holy, but Christianity is a holy religion. If you don't live by the code of Muhammad, you're a hypocrite. And Muhammad was a violent man. Muhammad was a pedophile type of man. And Muhammad was a man who violently subjugated and promoted his religion by the sword and said, if they do not confess Muhammad as uh, the prophet of Allah, that they should be subdued either by the sword in death or to pay the jizya, which was a tax for unbelievers, uh, that if they were willing to live within their Islamic society. So it was either die or be treated as a dimya, a less than. Okay, so we'll talk more about that in the future. And Sabil, if you're listening, we love you. We'll treat you with grace and peace, but we need to expose the lies and tell the truth. That's what we believe. Hopefully you'll believe the same thing. Absolutely. We are going to take a huge turn from that. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to pump the brakes, okay? And I'm going to get in the driver's seat right now. And, and uh, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to turn this around, and we're going to talk about stewardship. All right. All right. That's a Christianese word to me. I've never really heard that before I was a Christian, like rebuke, for example. I never heard people say rebuke. Uh, but now, as a Christian, uh, everybody says rebuke, and and then stewardship. So let me give you a quick definition of stewardship. Um, stewardship is simply management. It's management. It is uh, to borrow from the New Testament understanding of things. It's it's when a trusted slave is tasked with managing his servant's household. So take Joseph in the Bible, for example. Read his story in Genesis. He is a trusted slave in Potiphar's house. So he is not out in the field. He's not doing manual labor, but he's doing um, household labor. He's managing Potiphar's household. Similarly, let's use a modern example, McDonald's. Okay, you go to McDonald's, and it's usually not the franchise owner that you're going to meet there. If you say, I want to speak to the manager, there's going to be somebody who comes. They're not the owner but they have been tasked by the owner. They have been tasked by the owner to take care of the franchise owner's business. And so here's the principle for us as Christians. Here's the understanding. This ties into tithes, offerings, Christian generosity, everything, is that we are stewards of everything we have. We own nothing. We are simply taking care of God's things. In John 3, 27, John the Baptist said, No man can have anything except what he has received from heaven. And so we need to have that fundamental viewpoint that everything I have, and that is not just money, it's not just what comes in the form of a paycheck for us, but everything, resources, talents, and various opportunities, your family, Everything you have is something that God has graciously chosen to give you, but something that He will, uh, He that you will be accountable before, before Him, and so that is why we as Christians encourage good stewardship. The essential text on stewardship is Matthew twenty-five verses fourteen through twenty-nine. We're not going to have time to read the whole thing, but it's it's a very well-known text. It's the parable of the talents. Feel free to read it. 
And I'm, I'm going to break it down for you just a bit before we do some takeaways. So number one, this parable of the talents is our ultimate accountability in the kingdom of heaven at Christ's return. Jesus says in verse 14 that it will be like a man going on a journey. And he begins his parable. So this is, this is metaphorical language. This is symbolic language. Um, to describe when he comes back from his journey, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, and when he calls his servants to account. Number two, in that parable, Christ is the master and we are the servants. Christ is the master and we are the servants. So always identify yourself in that parable. I am the servant. I am going to answer to the master. The master is Jesus. Number three, in the NIV, it says that each servant was given bags of gold. Other translations render it talents. And that's kind of helpful for us because in the English language, talent doesn't refer to money, but it refers to things that we are skilled at. And so I want us to think broadly of our talents, our bags of gold, the things entrusted to us, the things which we must steward, not only as money, but resources, talents, and opportunities provided to us by God. Number four, the good and faithful servants, and there's two of them in this parable, one doubles, um, one is given um, two bags of gold, and he, and he makes four bags of gold. One is given five bags of gold, and he makes it ten bags of gold. So they are good and faithful ser ser servants. They are those who wisely invest what was entrusted to them and were able to double it. They are rewarded. Having been faithful with few things, they were put in charge over many things. And then number five, there is a wicked and lazy servant. This is the one who was given one bag of gold, and he hid his gold and did not invest it. It doesn't say he didn't waste it or, you know, spend it, you know, make it rain and spend it on debauchery. He simply, he simply hid his bag of gold. And he said he was afraid. This was his justification. He felt that his master was just too difficult and didn't even bother to try. Further, he shifted the blame to his master, calling him a hard man. The result was not the master saying, oh, I understand. We all have hard times. But he was cast into the utter darkness and his gold was given to the servant who had doubled his investment. So here's the takeaways. We know this parable, but this, this really hit me. And, and I think this will give you some practical uh, applications here. Number one, Jesus' disciples should be wise investors in every area, in every area of their lives. This parable teaches that stewardship is not merely about having good intentions for the kingdom, giving to charity, and tithing. God is interested in seeing us multiply what he has given us. If we think broadly about the resources, talents, and opportunities we have as our bags of gold to invest, we will do everything with the mindset of how can I do this better? Or how can I get the most out of this? How can I make this count for God's kingdom? This will dramatically increase creativity, initiative, and efficiency amongst God's, amongst God's people, not only in the church, but in the family, the workplace, and the community. Number two, Jesus' disciples should view giving as investing. Obviously, when we give, we ought not to do so based on what we expect in return. That would not be true generosity. But when we are giving to the things God is into, we can expect an eternal reward. 
Moreover, we must give wisely. We must give in ways that are most effective. So here's two questions we need to ask whenever we're giving to something, whether you're giving to to um, missions, whether you're giving to offerings, whether you're giving to the poor, whether you're helping out some people you know that are in need. Number one thing is you want to ask is, is, am I giving to a worthy cause or legitimate need? Am I giving to a worthy cause or legitimate need? So bringing up Gene and Tisa, missionaries to Mozambique, Africa, when they come to our church and talk about what they're doing, I see it as a worthy cause and a legitimate need. I see they're doing a good thing. I see that there's real need out there in many ways, and and especially for the gospel. And I say, this is something worth giving to. Now, there may be things that are not legitimate needs. Creflo Dollar's jet, is that a legitimate need? Is that something I want to give my money to? Honestly, no. And uh, am I saying it's a sin for him to have a jet? I'm not. I'm just saying I don't see it as a worthy cause or legitimate need. The second thing is what I'm giving and how I'm giving it the best way to help meet, to help that cause or meet that need. Let's give an example. If you're anything like me, you have had numerous emails from African and Indian uh, pastors who, who want to talk to you. And we love, I love and appreciate these brothers. I'm glad for what God is doing in these nations. But if you follow these conversations through in the, you know, in your chat box or what have you, eventually they're going to proposition you. They're going to ask you for money. And you have to ask yourself, am I giving to them in such a way that it's going to help advance the kingdom? Or is it just going to propagate more of this handout mentality? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the best way to reach India? Is this the best way to reach Nigeria? And so, yes, we want to help Nigeria. Yes, we want to help Africa. But I'm not going to go very far, and my dollar will not go very far if I'm giving it um, to the wrong places or to people who don't know how to use it. And so we need to be effective. Here's another way, uh, another thing that's very practical. Uh, Homeless people, we see tons of them every day, and we, we ought to have compassion on them. We ought to want to help them. But realistically, with so many, how many can you reasonably help? How many can you reasonably serve? So let's say this. In the morning, you say, I have $5, $5 here reserved that if I see a homeless person and, and, and I think it's a worthy cause, I think it's a legitimate need, I'm going, to, I'm going to give this to them. I'll put it in a bus pass. I'll buy them lunch. I'll do something of that sort. We typically don't put money. I don't. Uh, Pastor Joe does it. We don't put money in, in many homeless people's hands. We we try to buy it directly, and we think that's wisdom. But let's say I have that $5. I'm saying, how can I make this $5 count the most? If I buy this person lunch, can I sit down with them at lunch and minister to them? Am I going to give it to a person who will receive it with a glad and generous heart? I only have $5, but I want to make this count. I want to, in a sense, double it. I want to double the opportunity that this $5 will provide me to minister to someone and make an impact in their life. I want to find the one person who will appreciate it the most and feel God's love the most because of it. And so I'm not just giving money to anybody who asks for it because that's never that that's never really going to come back in a meaningful way. And so just a few thoughts there on stewardship. Um, 
And that's what I believe about it. What do you believe? That's good, baby. Yeah. I love stewardship. I actually wrote on it in our giving book. You can get it online or on Kindle. Just look up Joe Y. Rostick on Kindle, or you can uh, go to our website and you can look at the giving book. I, I made 52 lessons for 52 weeks in a year for, for pastors to use for offering time to give to their people. Cause I was brought up on this and uh, I think it's important that we teach people those principles and stewardship is one of my main sections. I go through 10 uh, components of stewardship and it's biblical. And actually uh, Jesus talked more about money than he did even about heaven. He gave more examples about what we were supposed to do on this earth preparing us for uh, the kingdom to come than he did just going on and on about uh, mysterious uh, things in heaven, you know? Really, he only does that with John the Revelator on the Isle of Patmos. We get a lot of those uh, descriptions of the 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 cherubim and the seraphim. But really, if you look at Jesus's life, man, he was so heavenly minded. He changed the earth for good. And he wants us so heavenly minded that we can change the earth for good. And a part of that is what you do with greenbacks, what you do with money, time and talents. Uh, You know, you have you have shekels, you have the money that you get for working hard, you have your time, the life that you can give, and then your talents and abilities. You know, some are gifted with encouragement, others are gifted with serving, others are gifted with administration, and God wants us to uh, to steward all of those things in such a way that we give him honor. So what do you believe? Do you believe you're supposed to do all things as unto the Lord? Do you really want to please God in all that you do? Well, that's what a stewardship is all about. So learn all about that. And um, any questions right now, guys, those who are online, someone asked about the book. If you go to mpichurch.org and go under books, you'll see giving book and you can get it there for free. Also with my name, as I said, Joe Y. Rostick on Kindle, you can download it for 99 cents. And that's good for anybody, not only just for pastors, but for anybody who wants to study. Uh, don't see any questions right here, but I do want to say that our 301 Apologetics class on Tuesdays is going great. And if you can't join us live from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, you can do so as well by catching it here on Facebook or on iTunes or our app. Remember, the iTunes and app is under our name, Metro Praise International. You can download it there and subscribe to us. Also, M- uh, MPI uh, church.org hosts the what do you believe tv.com website so you can go to what do you believe tv.com or go to mpichurch.org and scroll down by sermons and you'll see what do you believe podcasts there and so uh it's amazing that this week as i was talking about apologetics with our people in the uh, the Tuesday class, that now I have an atheist to join us for the last class there in September to actually come into the sheep's den to help us practice our apologetic method. And then that same very week, you know, last week, I get called by the Muslim, Sabil, from Gain Peace to come and join us on this podcast. So I am uh, sowing seed and I am reaping, as the Bible says. And um, I don't know. What do you think, man? A few moments here of some small talk. What do you want to talk about? I'm looking forward to those opportunities. Does this guy know what he's in for? Does I don't have any. Does he know? I have no idea. I told him it would just be me, so I'm going to have to hold yeah. back the tiger here. The tiger. <laughs> yeah. Also, I've been in some contact with some of my friends who I won't mention right now to scare off Sabil, but uh, Sabil knows who we run with, and uh, he doesn't want to deal with them directly. Let's put it that way. But uh, I said to him, if this goes well with the podcast, you need to have us in your Islamic center or a mosque, because I've already done it twice in our church. I want to have their base here, some of our goodies. 
That's it. And this is our heart for apologetics. We want to reach yeah. the Muslim. We want to reach the atheist. We want to reach them for Jesus Christ. We believe that's what apologetics is about. It's explaining, cl- clarifying, defending uh, the claims of our faith so that we can preach it better. That's right. So, so we could tear down the strongholds of unbelief and, and all the false ideas of doing that. And so we're just super grateful for those opportunities. Amen. If you look at evangelism going on this Saturday at Ohio Park, I'm even doing it now here at church, discipleship. He's got a discipleship meeting right after this. He teaches our Sunday 201 course, apologetics happening with our class, and then this debate with the Muslim, and then theology is what undergirds all of that. Our personal studies, he's teaching at the SUM Bible College. If you have a call, look at our church website and uh, look up SUM. There, we have it right there under Bible College, or if you're not in our part of the country, look at sum.edu to join a good Bible school. And then also, this guy right here, this awesome author, just got love from the Babylon Bee satire Christian site, and they published one of his articles about... uh, uh, it's about worship. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's it's basically a a dig at what can be kind of shallow Christian music, kind of self-esteem Christian music, and so the, the the headline was that the number one worship song of all time is is Christina Aguilera's "You Are Beautiful," yes. which is not directed at God, by the way. It's directed at you, yeah. you the listener. No matter what they say, yeah, that's words it. Words can't bring me down. That's well, it. This is what we believe. We want to know what, what do, do you, you believe. believe?